It was several years ago that we first told you about Chef Bruno Serrato. Chef Bruno Serrato is now a world-renowned chef, known all across the world for his amazing food. He owns a spectacular restaurant out in Anaheim, California called The White House. But what Chef Bruno is probably better known for is an organization that he started back in 2005 called Katarina's Club. He's known for his philanthropic work in Southern California, feeding thousands of children every single day. It all started back in 2005 as as he brought food to come and feed one child, turned into 72 children at the Boys and Girls Club in Anaheim. Pretty soon it was over 100 and then 200. It grew to 1,000 and then 4,000. And now Chef Bruno is serving more than 5,000 children every single day all around the Los Angeles area. Throughout this pandemic, Chef Bruno has continued to ramp up what he's doing as he's seen the needs increasing in their community. And over the last year, they went from serving 1,000 pounds of pasta a day to more than 5,000 pounds of pasta in a week. 1,000 pounds in a week to 5,000 pounds in a week. It's hard to even wrap my mind around 5,000 pounds of pasta. In one year since the pandemic has started, they've now served more than 2 million meals. Now, what Chef Bruno has done throughout his life has been incredible. But he wrote a book back in 2017 called The Power of Pasta. And in this book, he tells the story of really how it all started in his life, of how he got this heart for serving others, of loving others. He said it started as a young boy. Chef Bruno grew up over in France. He was born to an Italian family, but they had immigrated from Italy to France when he was just a young child because there really were no jobs in Italy at that time. His parents moved to France in search of work, and they were looking for better opportunities. Bruno was part of a family of seven children, his two parents. He said that he grew up very poor. They really had nothing in their home. The nine of them lived in a one-bedroom house there in France. He said as kids, they never had anything new. All of their clothes, everything that they had were hand-me-downs. Because he was one of the younger ones in the family, everything that he had had not only been worn by his older siblings, but had probably been worn by neighbors or friends of theirs, and then it had been passed on to them. He said there's one day in particular that stands out in his mind as sort of a turning point in his life. It was when he was eight years old. He said as an eight-year-old little boy, he owned this pair of shoes. And he was probably the fourth or fifth boy to wear this pair of shoes. By the time that he had them, they were so worn out. They had holes in them. The soles were worn completely out. I mean, they were barely hanging together. And he said as an eight-year-old, there was one day that they got this huge snowfall there in France. And he knew that there was no way that his shoes would be able to hold together as he walked to school. His feet were going to be freezing in the snow. As all the kids were getting bundled up and getting ready to head out the door, his mom could tell what was bothering him. And so she looked at him and she said, Bruno, would you like to stay home with me today? Yes, Mama. Yes, Mama. Bruno was so excited to get to spend time with his mother, Katerina. Now, Bruno loved spending time with Katerina anytime, but of course, the idea of not having to go out in the snow to go to school with his shoes like that made it even more special. So he was going to stay home with her that day. He said growing up as a family, they always had the same variation of the same meal every single day. And it was some kind of pasta with some kind of sauce. 
His mother was this great Italian cook, but he said we didn't have much in our family, and so it was the same thing every day. He said getting to stay home with her that day, he got to participate with her as she made the pasta. He got to help her roll it all out and and prepare all of the sauce. He had so much fun cooking with his mother, Katerina. He said it it made him feel so loved that day. The fact that she took the time to notice and to care about him, to cook with him and to teach him, he felt so loved. But he said as the day went on that they started having neighbors and friends who were showing up at their house. Others were coming by just to visit or they might need something from his mother. He said every person that came by, his mother would roll out the red carpet for them. She would scrounge up whatever she could find in the kitchen and she would start to make pastries or pie or cookies, whatever she could find in the kitchen to be able to put on her hospitality and provide this welcoming experience for all who came to her home. He said we didn't have much as a family, but she taught us about what it meant to share whatever we have to show love to our neighbors. Chef Bruno said that that day as an eight-year-old boy, it changed him forever. It was that experience of feeling loved by his mom and seeing the love that she showed to others that would change the course of his life. He would go on and now is blessing millions of lives every single year. And it all started by feeling loved. When you and I feel loved, it changes everything. When we can trust that we are loved, it sets us free. We begin to see the world and life in a new way. We begin to see the needs of those around us. And it sets us free to love others as well. This morning, I want to continue our sermon series, In the Room Where It Happened. We've been talking about this sermon series over the last several weeks as we're going through the season of Lent, preparing ourselves for the coming of Easter and the good news of resurrection. And what we've seen over the last several weeks is we've been looking at the disciples who were there in the upper room with Jesus, the disciples who had been following him for three years at this point, and we're able to see that as they came out of that upper room, they were changed. It was there in the upper room that Jesus instituted the Last Supper. He shared communion with them and broke bread and shared the cup. And they heard what it meant to have a new covenant based on love and grace. And it was after that that the death and resurrection would take place. And then we've said that the disciples found themselves at this crossroads moment where they had to make a decision. That after the resurrection, after that night in the upper room, would they go back to living the life that they were familiar with? Would they go back up to Galilee and go back to fishing what they knew, what was familiar, what was easy? Or would they choose a new way forward? Would they choose a new normal based in the love that they had experienced from Christ? The temptation that the disciples had to fight was not to go back to what was easy, not to go back with what was comfortable and what was familiar, but instead to choose a new way rooted in the love that they had experienced from Christ. We've said that you and I right now are sort of at a crossroads moment in our world. Over this last year, we have lived through so much with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've lost out on so many different things. We've experienced so much turmoil in our country with 
national elections and rhetoric that has been more divisive maybe than any time before. We've lived through all of the social unrest. We've seen the the hatred and the racism and the bigotry in our country, the violence that has taken place. We have been through so much in this last year. But right now we're at a point where we're beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. Vaccines are being distributed. We're starting to see the numbers coming down. And as all of this is beginning to happen, we can see that there is some sense of normalcy that is going to come back very soon. But the question that you and I have to answer is, do we want to go back to normal? Do we want to go back to the way that things used to be? Do we just want to go back to what is easy and comfortable and familiar? Or is this an opportunity for us to choose a new way forward? Is this an opportunity for us to have a new beginning rooted in the gift of God's love, the experience that we have of God's grace for us? What the disciples found in that upper room is that once you experience that gift of God's grace, that gift of God's love, you can never be the same again. Each week during the sermon series, we've been having fun looking at some of the different disciples. We've taken time, we've looked at Thomas and Philip, we looked at Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, and we're having a good time going through and looking at all of these different disciples. But this morning, the two disciples that I want to focus on are James and John. James and John were two of the original disciples. They were two of the very first ones called. In Mark's gospel, it's Jesus who comes and calls Andrew and Simon Peter first. And the very next two that he calls are James and John. James and John were the brothers. uh, They were brothers and the sons of Zebedee. Early on in their ministry, they would earn a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. What a nickname. That doesn't really give you these warm, cuddly feelings. That tells you something about who they were. They were the sons of thunder. They were known for their their angry spirit, their quick temper. At one point along the way in the ministry, we read in Luke's gospel that, that they came upon a Samaritan town. And the Samaritans there in this village didn't want to welcome Jesus and the disciples. And so James and John turned to Jesus and said, Do you want us to bring down fire from heaven upon them? These were the sons of thunder. They were ready to bring down the fire on those who were different, those who didn't accept them. And Jesus rebuked them for this and called them back. James and John were sort of part of the inner circle of disciples. We know that there were the twelve, but there were those who seemed to be just a little bit closer to Christ. It was James and John, along with Simon Peter, who would go up on the mountaintop with Jesus. And there they would witness as he was transfigured into all of his glory. It was James and John, along with Simon Peter, who were taken aside away from the other disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane by Jesus before eventually he would go off by himself to pray. And it was James and John here in our scripture lesson this morning that are walking ahead of the other disciples with Jesus. And it's there they would ask him a question. Will you do for us whatever we ask of you? Now, some of you know that I have a daughter. She's about to turn one year old next week. And I imagine there's going to be a time that will come in her life where she's going to turn to me and she's going to say, Dad, will you do whatever I'm about to ask you to do? Will you just say yes to whatever I'm about to ask you? And I can imagine what my answer is going to be. And it's probably not going to be nearly like how Jesus answered the question. 
James and John ask, will you, will you do for us whatever we ask of you? And Jesus said, well, what do you want from me? And James and John said, when, we, when you come into your glory, we want to be at your right and your left hand. Now, when the other disciples heard this, they were upset with James and John. See, they believed that James and John were asking for this special seat of power, that they were asking for some kind of privilege above and over everybody else. And they didn't like that. And you know, for years now, that's how I've read this scripture. That's always what I thought James and John were asking for. But as I started going back and studying the scripture and reading Mark's gospel, getting ready for today, I discovered something that I don't think that's really what James and John were asking for. Now, if you go back to the verses that come right before our scripture lesson today, if you go back and you read the rest of Mark chapter 10, what you find is that right before this, Jesus says, those who have left everything to follow me, well, they will receive their reward. It's right before this that, that Mark tells us that those who were following Jesus knew that they were on their way to Jerusalem. They knew what was waiting for them. And those who were following on that road were afraid. It's right before our scripture today that, that Jesus says, the first among you shall be last and the last shall be first. And then Jesus begins to explain everything that's about to happen. How when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed and handed over, put on trial and condemned. How ultimately he's going to be flogged and beaten, spit upon, and ultimately he's going to be killed. And it's immediately following that, that James and John ask the question, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into glory. And Jesus answers them and says, can you drink from the cup that I drink from? Can you be baptized with the same baptism that I'm baptized with? And James and John say, we are able. The cup, the cup that Jesus asked, can you drink from the same cup? It was the cup of suffering. This was a metaphor that was used in the Old Testament. It was a metaphor that James and John would have been familiar with. We read about it later on as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to God and saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. It's the cup of suffering. And Jesus is asking James and John, if you want to be with me at my right hand and my left hand, as everything is about to happen, are you prepared to suffer? What James and John were asking for were not seats of privilege and power above everybody else. What they were asking for was to be with Christ in the midst of his suffering. With everything that he was about to go through, they wanted to be right there by his side, at his right hand and at his left hand. When Jesus asked, are you able to drink the same cup? Are you able to be baptized? We are able we're prepared to take this on. James and John, these two disciples that had once been the sons of thunder, wanting to rain down fire on those who were different, they'd been changed. Their lives had been transformed, and now they were ready to take their seats and to suffer right alongside Christ. Why? Because along the way, they experienced what it meant to be loved. And they were willing to follow wherever Christ led them. We've been looking at the painting of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most famous paintings in the entire world. Well, I didn't realize that this painting is so large, 15 feet tall, 29 feet wide. It's painted on a wall there at a monastery in the dining room in Milan in Italy. 
It's this massive painting that depicts the Last Supper, and it depicts the moment when Jesus tells the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And then da Vinci captures the, the reactions of all of the disciples. And we've been going through and looking at the reactions and how da Vinci captured what they were feeling in that moment when they heard the news that one of them was going to betray Jesus. James and John, when you look at the picture and you find them, you see that both of them are shocked. Both of them are in dismay. John is sort of leaning back, swooning in his seat. He just can't believe what Jesus has just told him. James, he's got his hands outstretched angrily. You see sort of the son of thunder coming through in him. He can't believe what Jesus has just said. It's almost as though he's looking for who it is so that he can bring down fire upon them. And where are James and John seated at the Last Supper? John is closest to Jesus at his right hand. And James is closest to Jesus at his left hand. When you come into your glory, we want to be there with you at your right hand and at your left hand. Through everything that you're about to go through, we want to be with you. It was their experience of God's love, the grace of Jesus Christ in their lives, that had changed them. It had transformed them. It gave them a new beginning. This morning, as we look at James and John, as we continue this sermon series, there's just two ideas that I want to share with you. Two things that I think we can learn from James and from John. First, I think what we see from James and John is that their lives were transformed because of faith. And remember how we have defined faith here at St. Luke's. That faith is about trusting in God's constant love of us, His children. Faith is not about ascribing to a certain set of doctrines. Faith is not saying, here are all the things that you must believe in order to be a part of the church. No, faith is about trust. Trusting that God loves you. James and John experienced that love. And it was their trust in that love that would change their lives forever. As you go back and you look at James and John and the story, we see that Jesus asked them, are you able to drink from the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the same baptism? And they said, we are able. And then Jesus responds back and says, indeed, you will drink from the same cup that I drink. And you're going to be baptized with the same baptism that I'm baptized with. Jesus was predicting what was going to happen to them. They would go through suffering because of their faith. Ultimately, we know that from the early church history, it tells us that James, after the resurrection, would go over to Spain. And when he got to Spain, he began to evangelize and share the good news of Christ before finally coming back to Jerusalem. And when he got back to Jerusalem, he took his place as, as a strong leader there in the early church in Jerusalem. And we read in the book of Acts in chapter 12 that it tells us that eventually James would be martyred. He was beheaded by King Herod Agrippa because of his faith. John, on the other hand, he had a very different fate. We know that John lived to be a very old man, that he would live out the end of his days there in Ephesus, with the believers in Ephesus. He lived to be an age where he couldn't even walk on his own anymore. He had to be carried on a stretcher wherever he went by his followers. He was barely able to speak. He was so weak, so frail. 
Anytime that they would carry him into the body of believers, the assembly there in Ephesus, the people there would ask him, John, preach to us, teach to us. And the story is that every time, John would barely be able to open his mouth and he would simply say, my children, love one another. He would say this every single time. Finally, the church there in Ephesus, they got frustrated with this and they said, John, you were with the Lord. You got to hear everything that he said. Don't you have anything else to teach us? Don't you have any other stories to tell? And John would simply respond and say, this is what the Lord has commanded. And if this commandment alone is followed, it is sufficient. Love one another. James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the ones who had once wanted to rain down fire from heaven, where they were willing to drink the cup that Christ drank. Their lives had been changed by their experience of God's love. And it would put them on a trajectory that would help to change the world still to this day because of their work in the early church. When we experience God's love, it changes us. You may remember it was just over a year ago. It's hard to believe it was a year ago. It feels like a lot longer than that because of everything we have been through. But it was just over a year ago that we told you about a a trip that our executive team had a chance to make to go up to Pennsylvania. It was Dr. Long and Reverend Wendy Lambert, Reverend Phil Greenwald and myself. We went up to Pennsylvania and we wanted to go and visit several different places. We went to go and learn about Fred Rogers and Arnold Palmer. We went to go and visit Latrobe and we had a great time there. But one of the main reasons we really wanted to go to Pennsylvania was to go to Pittsburgh to meet with Rabbi Jeffrey Myers. You may remember that Rabbi Myers is the rabbi at the Tree of Life Synagogue there in Pittsburgh. And you may remember that it was back in October of 2018 that a gunman walked into the synagogue one day during their Shabbat services and began to open fire, killing 11 people. 11 people who had simply come to worship and to pray that day killed by a man who is filled with hatred, anti-Semitism. Afterwards, we watched on the news as Rabbi Myers and the congregation came out and, and in the face of such hatred and violence, they continued to preach this message of love, of forgiveness, of unity. It was such a powerful message, we wanted to go and meet with Rabbi Myers to, to learn about where this came from with them to learn about their experience of going through all of this and to see what was going on there at the synagogue today. We had a great visit with Rabbi Myers. He was was such a warm and wonderful man. You could tell that he was a very strong man of God, a man of faith, a man of such love. We visited with him and we began to learn more about the synagogue and what's going on today. We found out as we visited the synagogue that after the shooting had taken place, that they placed fencing, a 400-foot fence, all around the synagogue, and they had covered in this blue tarp. They had made the decision that they were going to start holding their services down the street at another synagogue nearby, and they wanted to come back and do some renovations and change up the synagogue before they brought people back. They felt like it needed to look different, have this fresh appearance before people could come back to worship there. And so they had put up this fence with this blue tarp around it, but Rabbi Meyer said, you know, every time you walk by, Every time you drove down the street, it just felt so depressing to see this blue construction fence all around the outside. 
He said, we wanted to be a, a community that brought hope to the neighborhood. We wanted to bring inspiration and beauty. And this blue tarp just didn't do it. So they made the decision that, that they wanted to do something up to, to, to change it up, to add some more beauty to it. And they thought, what better way to add beauty than through the art of children? So they put out word that they were going to hold an art competition. And they were asking children from around the world to submit art that they thought best depicted hope and love. They started to put out this word. They didn't know what the response would be. But soon, thousands of artwork began to pour in from all around the world, from Australia and New Zealand, from all across Africa and across the United States. They had thousands of submissions that came in of this artwork that was going to be put onto banners to cover this fence. Well, they knew they didn't have room for it all, and so they were going to narrow it down, and they had this competition, and, and they were going to select 100 pieces of art that were going to be used on this fence. They decided to make it a blind competition. The judges were members of the congregation there, and, and they didn't know who the kids were, where they came from, anything about them. They just saw the art. Well, as they started to go through it and pick out the pieces that they wanted to select, they narrowed it down to about 100 pieces of art. And once they started matching up the names of the kids and where they were from, what they noticed was fascinating. That more than half of the hundred pieces of art that were chosen to depict hope came from three places. They came from Parkland, Florida, from Newtown, Connecticut, and from Columbine, Colorado. Three places that had each felt the horror of mass school shootings. Three places where the children in those communities had faced such senseless violence and tragedy. And yet somehow these children were still able to find it within themselves to find hope, to find beauty, to find inspiration. As Rabbi Myers was telling us about this, I want to read you what he had to say. He said, it seems to me there is something going on with the kids in our country that despite the horrors, they're able to find hope. And it seems to me that if they can do it, then we have to do it. To be able to face all of the horrors, the tragedy that happened in our world, and to still be able to find hope. When you know that you are loved, when you're able to trust in the love that God has given to you, it changes everything. It changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way that we view one another. That rather than responding to racism with more racism, rather than responding to hatred with more hatred, rather than responding to violence with more violence, it is love that changes the cycle. When we trust that we are loved, it changes everything. And so second, it is our trust in God's love that I believe sets us free to follow where the Holy Spirit leads us in this life. James and John would, would find that following Christ would not be easy. No, Jesus would tell them, you are going to drink from the same cup. You are going to be baptized with the same baptism. I think what Jesus was trying to teach them was that everything that he was about to go through with the death and the resurrection, it wasn't just to atone for their sins so that they could go back to living however they wanted to live. 
It wasn't just to atone for their sins so that they could go back to living in the way that was comfortable and easy in their life. Jesus was trying to tell them, I'm going through all of this so that you can follow my example. So that you can drink from the same cup that I drink from. So that you can be baptized with the same baptism. When we feel the love of Christ in our lives, it isn't set us free just to be able to go and live however we want to live. It sets us free so that we can follow where the Holy Spirit is leading us. That's what James and John came to experience in their lives. It was last summer that I started taking sailing lessons out at Lake Hefner here in Oklahoma City. It was a good friend of mine that gave me these sailing lessons as a birthday gift for me last year. I'd always wanted to learn how to sail. It seemed like something that would be a lot of fun. I love being outdoors and doing sporting type events, being out on the water. It seemed like something I would be able to do for a long time in my life. And so I was excited to get the chance to, to go and learn how to sail. It was in one of our first sailing lessons that they taught us what it meant to tack. Now, if you're not familiar with sailing, tacking is when you turn across the wind, when you're turning into the wind in your boat. What we found out is that in a sailboat, you can sail just about any direction that you want to. You can sail downwind going with the wind. You can sail going across the wind. You can sail diagonally to the wind. The one direction that you cannot go is directly into the wind. And so if the place that you're trying to get is into the wind, the way to get there is by tacking. You turn the boat back and forth, making a zigzag pattern until you ultimately get to your destination, where you want to go. It's turning across the wind, making this zigzag pattern. That's how you get there. Well, as we were learning about this, it reminded me of a, a book that a good friend of mine had given me. He also loved sailing, and he said, every sailor needs to read this book. It's called, First You Have to Row a Little Boat. It was written about 30 years ago by a man named Richard Bodie. He talks about his experience of learning to sail a boat as a, young, uh, as a young boy and growing up sailing and all of the life lessons that it taught him. He tells a story in there about one time as a, a young man that, that he saw this, this girl that caught his eye at school and he wanted to take her out on a date. And so he invited her to go on a date and, and she agreed. She said yes. And so he really wanted to impress her. And so he was going to take her out on his sailboat. He lived up in the northeast part of the United States in the Bay Area up there. And, and he had this little blue sloop, this little blue sailboat that, it, that he had out there in the Bay. He had had so much fun growing up sailing it all over the place. And so he was going to take her out on his blue sloop, show her a good time. Well, they went out that day, they got on the boat and, and he wanted to go across the bay to this island called Fire Island. They thought whenever we get there, then we can get out and we can swim and have a good time. So they got on the boat, they started sailing the problem was that day, Fire Island was directly into the wind. So Richard knew that they were going to have to tack going back and forth in order to get there. Well, as they set their course and they started to go, he was kind of angled across off to the side of Fire Island. It wasn't long before a speedboat came speeding by them, with a bunch of their friends from school. And all their friends were laughing and waving at them and having a good time. And, and his date looked at it and she said, well, where are you going? You're going the wrong direction. We're supposed to be going that way. And they looked up ahead as the friends had already reached Fire Island and they got out and they started swimming and having a good time. And he was trying to explain to her how they have to tack and they have to go different directions in order to ultimately get there in a sailboat. Pretty soon, another boat came speeding by full of more friends from school and they were all laughing and waving and having a good time. They get to Fire Island, they jump out of the boat and they're swimming around with all their friends. Now Richard's got the, point, the boat pointed in a different direction. He's tacked back the other way. And she's getting more and more frustrated and impatient. 
She can't understand why they aren't just going directly to Fire Island. He's getting more and more frustrated as he's trying to explain this whole thing to her and why they can't go that way. The both of them are getting so frustrated that finally he turns the boat around and they go back to the dock. Needless to say, I think it was their first and their last date together. He let her out of the boat, but he said, you know, looking back later in life, it was one of those important life lessons. That sometimes in life we think we know where we want to go. We know where we're headed and what our destination is. But sometimes along the way, we don't always get to take a direct route to get there. Sometimes in life we find ourselves zigzagging back and forth, tacking one way and then the next to ultimately get where we're trying to go. When I was learning about this in sailing last year, they taught us, they said, you know, whenever you're tacking back and forth, it's really easy to get confused and disoriented, to lose sight of where you're trying to go as you're paying attention to your sails and your lines and you've got your rudder behind you and, and all of it can become disorienting if you're not careful. They said the way to avoid that is to pick a spot out on the shoreline, something out on the horizon that can serve as a marker for you, that you can look to and you can know where you're going so that whichever way you tack and zigzag back and forth, you can keep that in your sights and you know you're headed the right direction. It's really true in life. So often we find ourselves zigzagging back and forth. Over this last year, it's become so easy to get confused about where we're supposed to be or what we're supposed to do. In the midst of this pandemic, there have been so many debates about the right way to handle it, about masks and about vaccines and when to stay home and when to go out and what's safe and what's not safe. And it can be hard to know the right thing to do and where to go. But when we keep our eyes focused on Christ, when we keep our eyes focused on the love that God has shown to us, it's what keeps our lives grounded. It's what keeps us centered. It's what keeps us following where the Holy Spirit is leading us. James and John in their life, they'd find themselves zigzagging back and forth. They would experience the ups and the downs. But in the end, it was their trust in God's love for them. The love that they had experienced from Christ that changed their lives forever. It changes our lives as well. And when we trust that we are loved, it sets us free so that we can follow the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we can live in a spirit of love. It sets us free to love our neighbors, no exceptions. After all, as John would say, this is what the Lord has commanded of us. And if this commandment alone is kept, it is enough. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite each of us to lift up our own silent prayers.
Amen.